Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, it was a surprise DNA result with a surprise DNA match. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to a Connecticut man named Tom Kelly about the shock he received with his DNA results, and to Paul Woodbury from Legacy Tree Genealogists about the curious DNA match that almost led them all astray. You'll want to hear how this one worked out. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather connect a presentation of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and welcome to america's family history show extreme genes and extremegenes.com it is fisher here on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out well greetings genies it is great to have you back and uh, we've got some great guests today we've got one guy coming on who got quite a shock from his dna test and the ensuing investigation led to some amazing discoveries. So we're going to talk to him about his experience. We're going to talk to Paul Woodbury from Legacy Tree Genealogists about the entire case because it was really quite unusual. So that's all coming up in about 10 minutes or so. And if you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter yet, please do so. You can do it at ExtremeGenes.com or on our Facebook page. It's absolutely free and you get the blog from me each week, a couple of uh, links to past and present shows and links to stories that you'll appreciate as a genealogist. And right now it's time to head off to Boston, Massachusetts, where standing by, I can hear him breathing, it is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. It is David Allen Lambert. Hello, sir. Hey, I'm doing good, and obviously I'm breathing. You are breathing, <laughs> and you know, I think that's a, always an exciting thing in this day it age, really you know? is Absolutely. Well, my grandmother used to say it's always good to get up in the morning and not read your name in the obituary no. yes so. yes well first of all we got to acknowledge veterans day and send out yeah, a thank do. you and a salute to all of you who have served our country over the generations and boy we got one guy just turned 111 not that long ago 111 yeah lawrence brooks out in new orleans louisiana he was born in 1909 he was wow. a private first class with a 91st engineer battalion an african-american veteran who was stationed in new guinea in the philippines during world war ii and he looks to be in great shape, too. There's a picture of him. He's still wearing his uh, his uniform shirt with some memorabilia on there. And there were some young ladies from the World War II Museum in New Orleans who went to his house and did a big salute to him. It's awesome. Great picture. It looks like he's in great physical shape. And he, he related a story in an interview in 2014 where he had been on a C-47 cargo jet full of barbed wire, and one of the plane's motors went out. And to lighten the load, he had to throw much of the wire out as he could. I don't know if I'd want to be on the receiving end of barbed wire <laughs> falling on me either, let alone right? plane. But more power to him. And I'll tell you, he's got five kids five stepchildren, 12 grandchildren, and 23 great-grandchildren. Wow. Wow, what a life. 111. Well, you know, going back a little further, in Massachusetts, we're working on the commemoration of the 400th arrival of the Mayflower this month, and there's an earlier colony we hear about all the time, even in grade school. You may have heard about Roanoke. Mm -hmm. Well, there's new research fish. Looks like they may have found where some of the survivors went. In archaeological evidence, including English pottery dating from the 1500s 
to another site that also has a lot of mixed pottery from both Spanish and English origin that the colonists may have used. So they may be on to something here. So that's great. And it's on National Geographic. But of course, you can find it on ExtremeGenes.com as well to make it easier for you. You know, in genealogy, one of the things I always love to do is find old letters. But wouldn't it be great, Fish, if all of a sudden someone gave you a letter that never arrived to your ancestor? Wow. This is a great <laughs> story. And this is about a person that found an abandoned post office back in the 1990s and found a batch of letters. These letters date from 1902 to 1910. And one of them is written from a young girl talking about the licking she got from her teacher. She wrote to her aunt and told her all about what was going on at school and then threw her brother under the bus, revealing that he had gotten far more lickings from that teacher than she did. <laughs> Funny stories like that, then you get a sad story in regard to an Italian immigrant, a letter that his father sent him that he never received, where he wrote, Dear son, now I'm telling you that I would like in the month of May 1906 to come and see you on this earth if God will give us life, and adding that I hang on to the fantasy to come to your land. He never got the letter. But the nice thing, Fish, is that these letters are now being sent to the descendants, who rightfully will be excited to know that they even existed to begin with. Yes, absolutely. This is going to be a real treasure for those families. You know, it makes you think about eBay and how many letters are out there that are for sale every day that actually belong to somebody. Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, really, when you think about it, it is a lot like the dead letter section of the the post office to have all those old letters on eBay. You can find a lot of things. Better chance of finding an ancestor letter there than from the post office. That's very true. And this is a post office that closed, and they just left them there. So you never know what you're going to find. So stay tuned, genealogists. Psychology Today has written up a thing about why Americans are obsessed with genealogy. Psychology and genealogy, I never would have thought of ologies combining, but it kind of makes sense. Sure. Talks about the early interest in American genealogy. Uh, The author, Francois Wheel, spoke about our connection with the British aristocracy and people having coats of arms in their homes and stuff like that. And then the revolution happens, and we kind of break from that. And then Americans trying to reconnect with their past after that disconnect of the revolution. And genealogists in the 19th century, my own organization starting in 1845, was an influx of people trying to learn the past of early New England families. Fast forward 175 years and people have computers, they have DNA, we have the internet. And it just shows that people are still pushing forward. And I think the late 20th century personally, with both the Bicentennial and with the TV show Roots really helped that push. And I think it's been a steady stream since then, right through to Who Do You Think You Are that's on TV now and other shows. And David, we're going to get to an amazing DNA story coming up next. You hang on and uh, come back here at the end of the show so we can do Ask Us Anything, all right? I would love that. Well, DNA is always an adventure, and especially when you get surprise results. Hey, it's Fisher here from Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show, and I'm talking to Tom Kelly today. He's from Shelton, Connecticut, and Tom got one of those head-scratching results from his DNA results. And uh, Tom, first of all, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Nice to be talking to you. When did you get your DNA kit? I got it for Christmas uh, a few years back. 
at the age of 70 years old. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and I was in no hurry to send it in because I knew my genealogy. My mother was Irish-Irish. My father was Irish-German. I was raised <laughs> Irish. You're an Irishman. Right. And then what happened when you saw your ethnicity results? Well, it came back, and it said that I was a large part Italian with about 11% Middle Eastern. A lot of my friends told me that all Sicilians have Middle Eastern because of all the wars fought directly across the Mediterranean over the ages, and yep. they all have Middle Eastern in them. So I went out and bought another kit from a different company, and I sent it in because I figured I don't believe this. <laughs> and it came back the same. It came back exactly the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I went online, and I looked up genealogy research companies, and I read their reviews, and I picked Legacy Tree, and I called them, and I hired them. And off you went on your wild adventure. What were you thinking when you saw this? What did you think it meant before you even talked well, to anybody? Well, it obviously it. was starting to believe that it was true, and I just didn't know how it could have happened. Sure. And the first thing Legacy Tree told me was that the father that raised me was not my biological father. How did that impact that, you, Tom? I was very upset at first, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I was very upset at first. But then, you know... Things happen. My mother, she was a partier. Things happen. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if she knew. My father wasn't my father. I don't know if my father knew. They were both gone. So I just had to have Legacy Tree dig deep and find out what happened. How long in between the time you figured out these results and then you hired Legacy Tree and Paul Woodbury to work on this case? Probably three months. Three months. So during those three months, you were just kind of sitting on all this and your head must have been just processing it. Yeah. My wife said, why do you care at your age? But I just kept <laughs> feeling like I have to know who I am. That's right. You know? Yeah. Your, your identity. And, um, and you're not alone you that know? way. So many people feel the same way, especially when they get surprised results. I bet you there were some nights you just didn't sleep well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I felt like I'd been lied to my whole life and how could this be right? And you know, I was just glad that I had Legacy working on it. The first thing they told me for sure after my father wasn't my father was who my grandparents were, and they were from Sicily. It was uh, John and Grace, Giovanni and Grace to be more specific, and they immigrated here from Sicily. Wow. Did they have pictures for you? They had pictures. Okay. And then they narrowed it down to two of their sons. One of the two was my father. Now, wait, wait a minute. How many sons were there to begin with? There was a lot, but there were two older sons. There were three older sons. Okay. One had no kids. And the other two were the right age. And then they okay. had like five daughters, and then they had a couple more sons, but the younger sons wouldn't have fit in. So they weren't sure it was the older sons, either Michael or Lewis. Okay. And Lewis was a world champion boxer, uh, boxed in the Olympics in the 30s. Wow. Won gold medals. Yeah. And Michael was a, a doctor, a surgeon. Huh. So it was Michael and Lewis, and what happened was that Legacy sent me all the contact information for all the family members they could find on Michael and Lewis's side. Okay. And I wrote an email, heavily edited. I really tried to make it sincere. I said, a few people think I'm nuts. Call Amber at Legacy Tree. Here's her number. Here's her email. And and she'll verify that I'm honest, and I'm just looking for my family. And all of them were skeptical, except one. Mm-hmm. Carla, a cousin Carla from Lewis's side. She is the sweetest thing in the world. And she just got a hold of the rest of them and said, look, 
I talked to this guy. He's sincere. He's a nice man. We have to help him. You know? Right. If it wasn't for Carla, I just made none of this may happen. Yeah, all and, of them, all they got to do is spit, right? I mean, that's just spit. Right, right. Now, now, <laughs> right. They sent, that's right. You know, my heritage actually sent free DNA kits to all the family members of my new family. And she got them to send them back. And now they overlaid the paternal DNA of Michael and Lewis. And I was sure it was Lewis because I had seen pictures. My kids thought a picture of Lewis was me. Oh, wow. And um, so I was sure it was the boxer. But as it turned out, when they overlaid with Michael, who is my half-brother, it was a 100% match as a half-brother. And I was definitely the surgeon's son, not the boxer's. Now, this is really so, interesting because the, the surgeon, as I understand, would attend the fights of this Lewis, right? Exactly. They were very close in age. They were like Irish twins. <laughs> and my father, who raised me, was the general manager at the convention hall in Atlantic City, an avid, avid boxing fan. And he would have seen all Lewis's championship fights. And I'm positive they met the family. And when my father and mother and sister and brother moved to Brooklyn and left that job, they bought a house right near this Italian family, a mile and a half away. And it, as it turned out, my biological father actually was a surgeon in the hospital I was born in, in Brooklyn. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, what Isn't a story. Yeah, it really is. And, well, yeah, you know, every crazy. surprise story that gets a resolution like this, I mean, they're all unique. Everybody's story is completely different. Now, as I understand it, you had one DNA match that came from Carla. I guess she came in as if she were 96% likely that she was your half-niece, which kind of pointed to Lewis right away, right? Right. And, and so I that, call her my cousin. <laughs> well, she my, is. Lewis's granddaughter, so. Yeah, yeah. So she would be a first cousin once removed. But the interesting right. thing about this is, is there was only like a 4% likelihood that she was a first cousin once removed because you had such a high amount of shared DNA with her. This is something we don't often see, obviously, because it's like 24 to 1 that you get these kinds of mixes. So how remarkable. Yeah, I didn't even know that. So, well, there you go. I kind of got a little of the background from Legacy Tree. Fill me in now on what has happened. You've met your half-brother now. I talked to my half-brother on the phone many times and his wife, Liz, and we decided let's have a reunion of the two families, my half-brother and his wife and my Aunt Janet from Lewis' side and Carla and her husband all came down to the Fort Lauderdale Marriott. There was a covered area by the pool that we reserved, and my daughter... Tara actually flew down with her two daughters just for the day. This was that big a deal. My son flew down from New Jersey, both of them, and uh, my wife and I. And it was emotional. We were hugging and kissing and crying, and <laughs> we were talking about how this could have happened and about the boxing connection and everything else. And we just had a wonderful few hours, and then we went out and had a wonderful dinner together at a seafood restaurant in Fort Lauderdale. And since then, my brother Michael... And his wife have been to my summer house, my winter house in Stewart a couple of times for multiple stays. I've been to their winter house in Marco Island with my wife for a number of days. I've been to their house in Breezy Point, Brooklyn wow. for a number of days. They've been to my house in Connecticut for a number of days. And Carla, who started all this, invited us, my wife and I and Michael and Liz and everybody else, to a family feast at her brand new house in Breezy Point. Beautiful house. Ooh. And I met more cousins. I met an uncle. Um, uh, Carla's mother told me all about my biological father and how he was. And then the next day we had breakfast with my half-sister, Kathy. So 
Yeah, it's been wonderful. The bottom line on it, Scott, is that my brother, Michael, and I are like true brothers. We love each other. We text or talk on the phone almost every day. I hope to see him next week when I go to Florida. Mm-hmm. We have so much in common. You'd think we were raised together. We got the same sense of humor. We got the same politics. We like the same movies and we like the same music. And it's just unbelievable how close we have become the last couple of years. That's and, awesome. Um, so would you say and, that this has added to your family? Because I'm sure a lot of people who go through this, I mean, finding out your dad wasn't your dad, I know for me that would be a horrible revelation. And then, of course, you got the questions for mom. And how has it affected your thoughts about your mother and your dad? How have you been able to put that back together again? Because I would imagine you feel more like you've added to your family than taken away your dad's side. Well, that's exactly true. They're both gone. My mom and dad are both gone, so I can't ask them. I know I was raised with love. I I know that my mother especially. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm named after my mother, not my father. Huh. So that's the other funny part. Her name was was Anna Thomas Anderson. My name is Thomas Anderson Kelly. I thought that was another funny thing. But, you know, I don't even know if my father knew. I don't even know if my mother knew if she was still active with my father and she went out and had a one-night fling with the doctor. Sure. I mean, it, these things do happen in life. And of course. I don't hold it against either one of them. I still am very appreciative of the way I was raised by them. And now I have a whole new family of wonderful, wonderful people. And just just great, great, great people. And uh, they've welcomed me with open arms. They truly love me. I mean, it's amazing. And my wife, Carol. And it's been a great experience after the initial shock. (laughs) (laughs) After the initial, what? You know, oh, I can imagine. You, and that's why probably I let it go for a few months to decide what I wanted to do. But then I said I have to know. Well, you know, it's interesting you say this because I think the overwhelming majority of people who do find an unexpected birth family wind up generally with a positive experience like this. With people I've helped, and it's not nearly as many as Legacy Tree has, I've found many people have had that experience and they have connections and have siblings and reunions and then shared history and it's it's just an amazing thing. Tom, congratulations. It's obviously a life-defining and changing experience and I wish you happiness and great times ahead with your family. Thank you. And I thank you for listening to me. And I could never thank Legacy enough for doing this for me. Yeah, they do great work. And of course, they're, really do. they're one of our great sponsors, and I'm happy to share the story. So thanks for coming on. All right. Part two of Tom's story with Paul Woodbury from Legacy Tree Genealogists. And uh, Paul, it is great to have you back on the show. And my head is Thanks still reeling around this. And I think anybody who's ever done genetic genealogy and has either found a case and solved it for themselves or for a friend or a neighbor or something, there's an enormous satisfaction in putting that story together and, and solving a mystery that typically has been in somebody's head for a long, long time. And I can only imagine with a story like this, you must have gone to bed with a smile on your face when this got resolved. Yeah, I did. And it was a lot of fun to research this case and to discover stories that wouldn't be possible to uncover without the assistance of genetics. The stories that come up as we engage with genetic genealogy are just fascinating. I've done a few cases of multiple identities. I've done many unknown parentage um, adoption cases, and it's fascinating to learn about the mysteries and the stories that we can uncover that way. 
So I think the thing that crosses my mind first and foremost about this case is that with one test, you thought you had a half niece because it was at the 96th percentile that this was the relationship. And I think for most amateurs like myself who would do something like that, you'd look at it and go, aha, I think we've got this. But you kept going and you actually found that this relationship was part of the 4% that wasn't the half niece. So talk about that a little bit. What goes through your head when you see 96%? I would imagine initially you think just like the rest of us, aha, let's just go do our due diligence now and, and get rid of it. How often have you seen this kind of thing happen? You know, it's um, interesting because working as a genetic genealogist, a lot of the cases that I get to see are the challenging ones, the ones that come to us after it's already been through several hands, whether the client themselves or their friends or, or others that have taken a look at it on a volunteer basis, or maybe they've hired somebody else to also look at it. And so really, I think the main element here that comes to my mind as a professional genealogist, just because I have been burned in the past, <laughs> you know, I have said, oh, this is your dad. And then it comes back and they say, oh, nope, <laughs> this is just an outlier in terms of how much DNA this individual shares with you. And so I think for me, I am very conservative and I really try to disprove my hypotheses. Mm -hmm. um, if I come across a situation and it really looks very promising, then, yeah, I run with that, but I always kind of keep the question in my back of my mind, is there another possibility? Is there something else that I need to be ruling out and that I need to make sure that I address because someone makes up that 4%. In this case, we had, through genetic genealogy, been able to determine that Tom had to descend from a particular Italian couple in New York. But that couple had, I think, eight sons that could have been wow. the correct age to have been the biological father. And so for me, it was just, we need to explore all of those possibilities. And we immediately jumped to those that were most likely, those that were you know, about the same age as Tom's mother, that might have had more opportunity for contact and for a liaison there. But in looking at those candidates, we have to set up tests of hypotheses. And when we tested the first hypothesis that Tom was the biological son of the grandfather of this individual that we invited to test. She came back sharing 800, 900 centimorgans, right. which is exactly what you'd expect for a half-niece relationship, but... Allowing for yeah, her age. Allowing for yeah. her age, but there was just this slight possibility that she could also be a first cousin once removed, about 4% probability. And yeah, in normal situations, we would kind of go with that and say, yeah, this is probably who the father was. Fortunately for us, I think we were trying to be efficient. And so we tested both candidates at the same time. So it wasn't like her test results happened to come in first. And I said, well, let's just wait for the other test results before I actually make a, sure. make a decision on this. And I'm glad that I did because <laughs> it was very clear that our other testing candidate was Tom's half-brother. And right. while they're was no possibility that he could be anything else besides a half-brother. There was this slim possibility that the other first testing candidate could have been a first cousin once removed. And so that was a, a unique discovery and an exciting discovery to find, hey, we have a 4% case right here. Wow, um, yeah. And just really shows you have to be careful in making those assumptions and, and drawing those conclusions 
based on the genetic evidence. For me, sure. I, I try and get as high a percentage probability as I possibly can because, you know, I, I deal with so many cases that just by chance, there's going to be some of those that I get wrong if I'm too liberal in what I accept as acceptable right. proof of the argument. So l- let me ask you this then. If the bio father hadn't had any other children other than Tom and you had nobody to test from that line, or that would have been the other possibility that the children were all deceased, what would yeah. you have been, you know, let's just say that he had no other children. What would your conclusion have been? What would you have told Tom at that point? You know, if we didn't have any options at that point, I think probably what I would have told him is that even in this case, it's most likely that the other brother was your bio father. If we didn't have any candidates, that would be really hard. And that does sometimes happen. You know, you sure. you find this family and there's several candidates within that family and none of them had descendants. And you're kind of left wondering, okay, which one of these brothers could have been the biological father or which one of these, yeah. you know, children could have been a bio parent. We might not even know which parent, if it was the father or the mother. And so when you run into those situations where we have to turn to what's left to us, which is the document trail, to find out as much as we possibly can about where those people were at the time of the conception. Right. And try and figure out, okay, who is closest, who was in an appropriate area to have been the bio parent. And, you know, that's that's always the case with genetic genealogy. Yes. DNA is, is only one type of evidence, and we have to rely on the document trail to help us bring context to that genetic information. I've had a couple of cases here in the last couple of years among friends where I was trying to help them solve a problem. And and like you say, we got down to one where there were three possibilities. We eliminated one, and now we're left with a boy and a girl. So we don't know if this man's grandfather was the child of the girl or the boy. And so, obviously, what we would like to do is try to find the other genetic network and develop one candidate there. Then you're naturally eliminating the other. But, boy, what a case that uh, you just had with this one. I'm sure it's one of those that will stick in your mind for a long time. (laughs) I imagine you can't keep them all in there because you do so many. Yeah. Sometimes I, I, you know, I get questions about cases I've done previously. I said, did I do this? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, things come across my desk so often, and, and I, you know, I solve these cases. And, but it, it, I don't know, it's, it's kind of fun to read through some of my, my old reports and the things that I've, I've done and be able to say, oh, yeah, I did do this. And, oh, yeah, I do remember this family. And it's like meeting an old friend again, you know. <laughs> sure. Well, each case has so many moving parts, right? Or it wouldn't have landed on your desk in the first place. And uh, it would be very difficult to remember everything that was involved in that. I can't imagine. Absolutely. But it's, it's a lot of fun, and I really enjoy the opportunity to really solve these mysteries and to bring some meaning and to really interpret all of the information that we have available to us to, to arrive at some really solid and proven conclusions. Well, for a man like Tom, obviously it was a shock to him to learn that his dad wasn't his biological father, but obviously he's overjoyed with the new family that he's met as a result of your efforts, and that's got to be enormously satisfying. It absolutely is. Paul Woodbury, thank you so much for coming on again. It's always great to have you on the show, and congratulations, and sleep well over this one, and move on to the next case. I'm sure there's a great story waiting there for you. On to the next adventure. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
All right, it is time for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show, and ExtremeGenes.com. Fisher here with David Allen Lambert, the Chief Genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and American Ancestors.org. And uh, David, we have a question here from Jolene Baranski from Trenton, New Jersey, and she says, I'm new to genealogy. I'm curious why ads in the newspaper show that the post office has letters for my ancestors. Why didn't they? They just deliver it to their home. Interesting question. <laughs> well, that is an interesting question, and I can kind of understand what she's talking about because you would think smaller towns, and back then you probably could just go door by door. The idea of rural mail delivery really didn't come into America until the 20th century. In fact, that's one of the reasons why, if you look on the census, there were no numbers on houses on rural streets because, well, that's where the Fishers lived, and that's where the Lamberts lived. Everybody yep. knew that. You get numbers starting to be assigned in urban areas, more likely, uh, because if you have multiple families living in a particular building, so sometimes you even get ABC. But the reason? Because they just did not deliver the mail to these houses back then, or apartments. You had to go to the post office. And so, like, you know, you sometimes forget to go to your mailbox for a couple of days, and it builds up. So a picture of the post office has a lot of mail that you haven't picked up. Not that you had a P.O. box. I'm sure they had, like, probably pigeonholes where they kept the letters in for people alphabetically. And periodically, they would put ads in the newspaper. And then the newspaper would say, there's a letter for David Lambert or Scott Fisher. Please come to the post office. And guess what? If you didn't pick it up that month, they might run that ad again in another month. It could mean a couple of things. I mean, obviously, what comes to mind first? The person's dead. Yeah. Or they may have moved, or maybe they are out at sea, or maybe they're at war. Or they're incapacitated, really. There are lots of things that can cause this, but, you know, it could be an indication of something. The nice thing is, David, is if your ancestor had an unusual name, obviously it wouldn't apply to somebody like John Smith. But if they had an unusual name and you could find there's a letter waiting for them at a post office in a newspaper ad, a digitized newspaper, then that can give you a direction of where to look in your research as to where somebody might have moved to. All right. I mean, the other thing that's really kind of fun with that whole thing is that a lot of places they're not city directories or there you know it's in between a census year you could use this as sort of a census substitute if you will speculating that the person within say six months may have lived in the community that they knew that the person was there it's interesting to think of how would the post office know you lived in the town period i mean someone could send a letter to me in boston massachusetts i don't live here i work here back say uh in 1870 and maybe that's the reason i didn't pick it up because well i don't live Live here. Why would I have sure. a letter there? It would have to be care of. And maybe these people misdirected a letter, perhaps. You know, they put the wrong town that it was supposed to be or the wrong state. I mean, there's Boston, Kentucky, as well as Boston, Massachusetts. So, I mean, I could see where confusion could happen and letters misdirected or the wrong name on it. So, yeah, it's a it's good c- mystery. But, yep, that's why <laughs> <laughs> they just did not do delivery to house to house back in those days. Well, it's kind of fun. Sometimes I've looked at that and I've seen a letter to Oliver Secord or whatever, and I think to myself, oh, 
what I would give you if you feel so close to being able to actually obtain the letter and read what it said and who was it from and what was it about. And your mind kind of mm-hmm. goes crazy on that. But, you know, that's the fun of genealogy is trying to put these mysteries and these puzzles together. And newspaper ads for letters that haven't been delivered can be another great clue. And perhaps you'll figure out that that's part of the timeline. And as everybody knows, I'm really big on putting together timelines for people. That's a great question. We appreciate that, Jolene. All right, next up, another question on Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes. I am Fisher. That's David Allen Lambert in Boston from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Dave, this question is right up your alley. At a museum, I saw a military commission from the 1700s. My ancestor was an officer in the Revolution. Where can I find his commission? And it's from Rance Oldham in Columbia, Missouri. Great question, Rance. What do you think, Dave? Well, I'll tell you, it's really interesting because these military commissions liken to your high school or college diploma. These are actually large certificates, usually signed by a governor with maybe a colonel or a general, et cetera, that was connected to the commission itself. So essentially, you'd be getting this document. It would be signed, sealed, and delivered, and you probably would frame it at home or have it rolled up or whatever. And that was it. There is no duplicate copy generally. So these museums and even NEHGS here in Boston, we have dozens of these old colonial military commissions that in the archives in the colony, your ancestor got the commission. There's probably something in the governor's papers, at least what I find in Massachusetts, where it says that Samuel Ordway received a commission of captain on this day in 1725 signed by the governor. And it's written in the governor's records that these commissions were given out. But that's it. The funny place that you can find these things could be at a historical society or a yard sale or a flea market oh, or better yet, even eBay. Depending on who is the person signing the commission determines the value. So if it's a very famous colonial governor that may have been later a signer of the Declaration of Independence, it's worth thousands of dollars. Some of them you can pick up for 50 to a couple hundred dollars. I have one from the 1720s that somebody gave me years and years ago with the idea that I would eventually do some research for them in return. Well, they passed away. I never got a research request, so it sits <laughs> on my wall. So I may find it as a donation back to the local historical society where this veteran came from. But right now it looks nice on my wall at home. So we're talking about uh, state archives, governor's records, But, you know, we keep going back to eBay. Isn't it amazing how much stuff is there? I just recently picked up, David, a document that was uh, rebating taxes to a widow in Fairfield, Connecticut, at Mm -hmm. the very end of the Revolutionary War from 1783. It was actually written out in the month that the British evacuated New York City. And it's from Fairfield, Connecticut, not far from where I grew up in Greenwich, And the guy who signed it was Thaddeus Burr, who hosted, oh, George Washington at his house before it was burned down by the British, who actually hosted the wedding of John Hancock and his wife. As I've researched this document a little more, I've come to realize that Thaddeus Burr wrote the entire document. And if you're all wondering how much money would one pay for something like that, in my case, $38 for a revolutionary document. Yeah, I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. And there are others out there too. There are a lot of things that are under $100. 
This doesn't relate directly to any of my ancestors, although I had a revolutionary soldier who came from Fairfield. So that was kind of my interest in what made me look in that direction in the first place. And I stumbled on that and I thought, wow, that would be a really neat piece to keep. And you can pick up musket balls that are online from various battles. I mean, there's so many revolutionary trinkets that might relate to your ancestor. You can pick up for a song. I think you'd be really shocked if you got down deep in the weeds in eBay. It's amazing. It is you absolutely amazing. All right, David, thank you so much. And uh, thank you to you, Rance, for the email. And, of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Well, that's the show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Talk to you next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.